to breakfast What's before lunch? It's Austin, Texas It's weird brunch I think that means you guys won't hear the air show going on But there's like fighter jets flying right over my house every like five minutes Big sonic booms It's fun Why? I don't know, we might be at war Okay. Um, but I think it's it's probably just some sort of summer festival over the lake. And, you know, they're making lots of noise that you can hear everywhere. Sounds like a Ferris Bueller day. Right? It kind of is. That's why I'm all sweaty. I've been running around town looking at Ferris Bueller things. Guys, I just went to a bookstore that was stocked with zines. Like, so many zines. Hmm. Does that Like the paper resonate? ones? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm never sure like where the cutoff is between <laughs> things only Gen Xers know and things <laughs> millennials also know. I had like, such zines... a that moment, but please continue. I will bring it <laughs> well, up. Well, yeah, later. zines died out like in the late 90s, it felt like. And it's really weird to see a store stocked with them, like new ones in 2021. I was really excited. I remember seeing a few in like... The early 2000s. But, yeah. Um, I had that, like, I don't know where the cutoff is last night. I was hanging out with my uh, birth mom and then her kids. So that's like a 10-year difference versus a 17-year difference. And I was like, something, something. We're talking about Dr. Death. And so I brought up uh, Joshua Jackson. And everyone's just kind of like, <laughs> I don't and I was like you know like Dawson's Creek and you know, my, from my the- mom was like I think yeah I've heard of that yeah 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 I was like okay I'm gonna yeah you right got caught middle. right in the middle yeah you and, and and you guys and Trish are all in what I call the WB generation where you're like <laughs> where you're like Gen X aware but technically millennials but not really acting like them you know what I mean like mm-hmm. yeah um, Close to being geriatric millennials. No, that would be me, apparently. Okay. John According is that, one as well. Awful article that I don't listen to because I am proudly Gen X. Sorry. <laughs> oh, are you like the first year of a millennial? No, two years. I miss it. Because millennials start in 80, right? Born in 1980. I think it's, I think it's 81. 81. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I so I was, I was born in the seventies, and that's why I had a legitimate crush on Winona Ryder. That's my litmus test. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Man, I went down a Janine Garofalo, oh, love her rabbit hole the other day, and I was like, because I saw something, and it was her, and um, I was like, I fucking know that movie. But then she is kind of the goth girl in a lot of 90s movies. Yeah. yeah and I was like, like all of them. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, which one? It was Romeo and Michelle. Okay. I was going to say, <laughs> I feel like that's the one I know her best from. Mm-hmm. Not Truth About Cats and Dogs or Mystery Men. What Hot Mi- American Summer? <laughs> what Hot American Summer? Yes. Oh, yeah. Duh. It's yeah. funny because that's the one where she's not the goth girl, yeah. you know? No, she's I was not. like, she's not. And then I was like, oh, fuck. She's the main bitch in Wet Hot American <laughs> yeah. Summer. Duh. Yeah. It's just, it's, she's, it was a new I love her. reality bites. 
Mm-hmm. Reality Bites, of course. Because both yeah. of the women were speaking of. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why I left it off. It didn't need to be said. Mm-hmm. The truth uh, about cats and dogs is such a like 90s movie. It's I haven't yeah. seen it since I was a kid. I don't remember the, anything about it. I've never that was seen from it. the end of that time where you could cast Janine Garofalo as the ugly one. Right. You know? Like Which yeah, is, the nineties. You never really could. No. But there's the perceptions that we all were forced to yeah. accept. Live Good up Lord. to. Good. Well, and Lord. And I feel like with Janine Garofalo, also, it was even more so just her voice, I think. People weren't used to a woman mm-hmm. sounding like a normal human. Intelligent. <laughs> kind of, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, thanks, Janine. Paving the way for all of us. I've been down a Mr. Show rabbit hole lately. I think it was Bob Odenkirk's whole health scare, like mm-hmm. set it off on YouTube. And now every day I'm watching like three different Mr. Show sketches. Mm-hmm. And so like she's in there a, a little bit in the first season, but the person who's I forgot was on that show so much was Sarah Silverman, like really young pre standup fame. Sarah Silverman is all over oh, that yeah. show playing all sorts of weird bit parts that are like, what? They cast you as a hooker. Okay. <laughs> Sarah Doesn't seem right. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> I did not sleep uh, Thursday night, like at all. And so some of that not sleeping ended up being um, me going down Chris Crocker's uh, Leave Britney Alone. What's the he video. Doing? Well, um, so his, their. Um, their Instagram handle is it's Chris Crocker, but recently Kara is oh. so um, she's like taking a lot of those beginning steps and okay. documenting all of it, mm-hmm. and it's been like it's kind of really cool. Um, mm-hmm. Also, just beautiful, just <laughs> such a beautiful woman. <laughs> Really? Yes. I bet she's got a good following too, huh? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's like I'm, a million people, which I was a little thrown by. Because I, re- I remember like a few months back, I was like, where is Leave Britney alone? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I found her. There you go. Oh, wow. Not oh, a fine. shock, but that's cool. Yeah. It was kind of a yeah. nice... Britney adjacent thing to to just scroll around, you know? Right. Um, I discovered this week that there are f- curly feathered geese, and it what? made yeah, it they're so cute. They look like geese wearing like a fur coat or like a feather yes. coat. It's so funny looking. So yes. if you just want to feel happy, look up curly feathered geese because it's fucking cute. Um, Looking it up. Yes, yes, yes. It, all of this. Isn't it great? It uh, looks like they got thrown in the dryer and they shouldn't have been. Yeah, they're know? just so fluffy. And geese are such assholes. So mm-hmm. I imagine that these ones are nice oh. um, based on their fluffiness. She a dreamer. I am. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure they're dicks, but whatever. One, like you said, one yeah, but they're dream. They're handsome dicks. 
Well, that's a really handsome dick you have. Oh, God. <laughs> Can uh, you imagine? I'm leaving. Yeah. I feel like a little well coiffed pubic hair. Ugh, <laughs> handsome God. dick. Nice. And Look fluffy. at your fashionable dick. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my God. I was just thinking the other day about how I always pull our most um, raunchy reference as the episode title and i'm like this makes us look like the most juvenile podcast of all time i've really got to stop doing that no. and then of course i'm like now it has to be handsome Dicks. yeah now you have to name it handsome yeah Dick. i can't help it also it's good marketing is it's, it yeah i think people yeah, love probably. that shit like it's weird too because if it were me personally and I saw it, I'd be like, oh, this is a podcast that's just like women talking about sex. Like there's a bajillion of these <laughs> and they're so fucking boring and I don't understand why people would listen to it. And then I'd click away. <laughs> no, but we never talk about sex. We just make one raunchy joke and then yes, hit her and then exactly. move on to serious exactly. adult subjects. Yeah. It, like fluffy geese. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Oh. Yeah. Or... So, leave Britney alone. Leave Britney alone. I also so uh, we I, th- I don't I think we did talk about this on one episode, but when we were in Arkansas, Whitney was looking up Branson, Missouri, mm-hmm. and oh. there's a Titanic museum there. Um, of course. And then I also discovered there's at least one more in Tennessee, mm-hmm. and the Ooh. fake iceberg broke. Uh, and, and injured people. Yes. And so oh, what? Yeah. They had like an iceberg wall that was like made of actual ice. I don't know. And somehow it, global warming. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> global warming got this fake iceberg and the it broke and they had to like airlift a woman or I assume it's a woman. I don't know. They had I think. To- okay. So that yeah. was my next thing is Karina. What do you think the average Titanic museum goer is like who is age? Like who is going who is to our these? target audience? Yeah. Uh, I think our target audience is anybody who was of movie going age in 1997. Anybody of that age? See, I think it's yeah, over. I think it's going to be a broad swath. No, I think it's going to be uh, like people who are who are like in their young, lower forties and who are still like super obsessed with the movie in their twenties would still go to that museum. Okay, so you're yeah. saying mostly lower forties, Gen X and Boomers. See, yeah, okay, this generation lived through it; they don't need it. I would say just <laughs> Boomers because I'm not sure, like. How much Leonardo DiCaprio is in There's that, but also like a themed museum that's not like art seems very old to me. But well, when's the last time you were in Tennessee? I've never been to Tennessee. I've got bad (laughs) news for you about about people of all ages in Tennessee. And that bad news is they do love them a themed museum. That's Dang. basically what Nashville is. Hmm. Is there a creationist museum in Tennessee? No, but is. Kentucky. I think it's yeah. Kentucky. Yeah. There's a few of them around. Let's see. <laughs> There's also more than oh, one I'm sure. of them. Jesus on dinosaurs. Where, uh, I love it. 
Yeah, Boone, Boone County, Kentucky is actually really close to Tennessee. So close That's enough. fair. It's like that area where it's the same. What if we... Oh, no, like, it isn't. Wrong do... border. It's near Cincinnati. It's near Ohio. Shocker. Oh. Wow. Oh, Maybe we do a road trip across the U.S., but we only go to Titanic museums. <laughs> oh, we compare. could start in Denver. There's a, there's not, it's not a museum, <laughs> but the, uh, the Brown Hotel downtown in Denver is named for Molly Brown because that's what she owned. That's why she was rich. She was a gold miner's widow. And so there's a whole thing in the lobby about the unsinkable Molly Brown. That's cool. Complete with photos of Kathy Bates so that you know who we're talking about. <laughs> I love yes, that. Yes. Only yeah. photos of Kathy Bates. I know. Yeah. I went to the Buffalo Bill Museum when yeah. I was like oh, 10 mm-hmm. or something. I remember. Is that, my is dad that on I-70? Where is that? <sighs> is that in Colorado? No. It's like, I think it's in one of the Dakotas. Oh, geez. South, likely. Oh, yeah. Um, I just know in the north. <laughs> yeah. Just <laughs> fracking. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but I just north remember. <laughs> I don't know why that just sound was like. Ugh. Yep. Uh, I just remember it because my dad got a speeding ticket mm. along oh. whatever desolate, desolate right. highway we were on. <laughs> Well, yeah, and isn't the speed limit there like 95? I mean, it was or, well, maybe that not day. Yet. Okay. You're going to want to get through here as quickly as possible. So, I mean, it's that area where there's nothing. It's like yeah. the plains area, not right. the Black Hills area. So it's like, let's just get, yeah. Mm-hmm. I have, maybe it was in Wyoming. I haven't, yeah. I don't oh. think I've been to any of like that section of states. Like, I'm not anywhere. I haven't been to a lot of states, actually, now that I think about it. We should. Like, well, we weren't a road trip family. Hmm. Yeah. We should go on a road trip. Oh, my God. Yeah. What we did whenever we went to Sturgis was we flew into Denver and then got our RV and then just drove up and to the right mm-hmm. <laughs> through Wyoming and then mm-hmm. straight into South Dakota <laughs> yep. Please and avoid Nebraska at all costs. That is. <laughs> that's I've key. only been to Omaha, and that was nice. Yeah, that's I've practically Iowa. Though. I'm in Nebraska at all. Well, let's go to all yeah, of these. We're places. gonna have to. I, I Truly, know. you should go to Deadwood. Deadwood is. Deadwood's just, cool. Deadwood's great. Where is Deadwood? Yeah. South Dakota. You said that like you were mad. Well, at where me. the fuck is Deadwood? It's in South Dakota. Okay, it's in it's... the pretty part of South Dakota. It's worth going to. Got it's it. thirty minutes away from Sturgis. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, it's just it, it barely different than what you've seen on the TV show. Mm-hmm. I mean, that sounds cool. That sounds pretty cool. Uh, well, yeah. I guess welcome to Weird yeah. Brunch. Bienvenido. Oh yeah. Bienvenido. <laughs> um, Bienvenidos a South Dakota. See, <laughs> this is technically brunch time, and it is a Saturday. And mm-hmm. Lisa brought me McDonald's, so I, we are technically oh. having brunch right now. It's true. 
I had a peanut butter and Nutella crepe cone for brunch. That sounds delicious. It was. I was just trying to get some tea at a coffee shop, and they were like, here, have a Nutella cone. And I was like, yeah. It's like, absolutely, I will. Yeah, if you're in the Midwest and you're not obese, they work on it. They, like, get you right away. You know, like, <laughs> no way. Here, have this. I've been given so much ice cream lately. Hmm. I feel like Chicago is that, though. I feel like Chicago's like, you want a butter pizza? <laughs> Do you want this <laughs> hot dog that is larger than your arm? Yeah. I was talking to Trish. I think I think my my read on Chicago so far is that it is a museum to the twentieth century. Is is hmm. there something that the rest of the world has moved on from? Chicago still has it because I've seen more travel agencies here than I have like since I was a kid. Well, I, that might be a mob front. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course it is. The mob. That's another twentieth century thing that they still have here. Mm-hmm. 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 So speaking of the mob, mm, there we <laughs> go. Um, so I wanted to talk about a mob. So when you think of the mob, when you think of the mid twentieth century mob, who are you thinking? Uh, Gotti, the Bonanno family. Everyone all at once. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Spaghetti. Um, <laughs> yes. So yeah, you you think of you know you think of the Godfather. Yeah, um, I wanted to talk about someone who uh, was a little bit different, but still ran with all of those guys. Um, I wanted to talk about Bumpy Johnson. What a name! Oh, love him. Mm-hmm. I also love him. Uh, he was one of the most adored and feared crime bosses of the mid-20th century New York City. Um, He had a brutal ruling, but he also had incredible care for his neighborhood, which is what gave him the name Harlem Godfather. Um, Okay. How'd he get the name Bumpy? I'm so glad you asked, because he was born in 1905 in Charleston. Not a good place Mm -hmm. to be born in 1905, Mm -hmm. um, if you are a person of color. Uh, He was born Ellsworth Raymond Johnson, and he was born with a bump in the back of his head. Uh, But it didn't look like nutty, but it was enough for his family to start calling him Bumpy. Bumpy. And then that (laughs) just stuck. Um, so then in 1915, uh, Bumpy is 10 years old and his brother William is accused of killing a white man Uh in Charleston, South Carolina in 1915. Um, so his parents almost immediately, uh, you know, obviously they're afraid of a lynch mob and, uh, his parents mortgage their home, their very small home, and they raise money to send Willie up north to live with relatives. And then the parents moved most of their children, their seven children, to Harlem, um, okay. which at the time was known as a haven. Oh, I was like, what? What was that? That's my dog. Just Oh, I thought it was feedback. It, it was very yeah. high-pitched and sounded yeah. like, I thought it sounded like a window 
Oh. Slowly getting no. She's very talented at being annoying. <laughs> at very various pitches. Um, so uh, Harlem at the time was a haven for the black community um, in the earliest. <laughs> Does she, is she racist? She is, yes. Could be. Could be. She has a lot of opinions about Harlem and <laughs> the early 20th Stop. century. Black on black crime isn't a thing. Shut up. <laughs> Political she dog. From, she, is. she gets the stuff from Reddit, I swear. Okay, shush. Um, so, uh, Johnson, as he grew older, um, his parents start worrying about his short temper and kind of, you know, a little bit of a bias against the whites, obviously. Um, Mm -hmm. and so they're kind of like, oh, I think it's time for you to go to Harlem as well. Um, so in 1919, he is sent to live with his older sister, Mabel. Um, and then because of his bumpy head and his uh, thick southern accent short stature he is 14 and he is picked on relentlessly oh, by these new york city kids yep. oh, uh w- you're not talking fast enough right. come on what are you doing here <laughs> sorry that was not a very good N- neither were mine matter. we're all fine um but this is actually where he starts maybe getting some of his skills to be a crime boss um, because instead of taking the hits and taunts, Johnson makes a name for himself as a fighter who is not to be fucked with. Um, he soon drops out of high school and he starts making money by pool hustling, selling newspapers, and uh, sweeping the storefronts of restaurants with his gang of buddies. Um. He also, this is how he meets William Bub Hewlett, who's a gangster. He takes a liking to Johnson um, whenever Johnson's like, uh, he won't back off of his storefront territory. So it's one of those, like, he's, as he's sweeping these storefronts, he's also kind of getting involved in some of the, like, yeah, I'll look out for this window or whatever. Uh, Bub pulls Bumpy into the business of offering physical protection uh, to the high-profile numbers bankers in Harlem. Uh, numbers bankers are the people that are running the numbers, um, or I guess, yeah, running numbers. <laughs> so, like, lottery, uh, like, just basically gambling, uh, illegal yeah. gambling. Um. So he's he Bob pulls him into uh, being these guys' bodyguards, and then pretty quickly after that, uh, Johnson becomes one of the most sought-after bodyguards in the neighborhood. Um, and then he quickly moves on to armed robbery, extortion, and pimping, uh-huh. as you do. Uh, yep. He was known for his flashy style and dapper look, and he was always armed and did not hesitate to resort to violence to achieve his objectives. Get your Get goals. Paid. Get paid. Um, he was in and out of reform schools and prisons for much of his 20s. And during those periods of incarceration, he read incessantly and developed an affinity for writing poetry. Some of his oh. poems were published during the Harlem Renaissance. Um so I, that's pretty fucking cool. Um, yeah. 
However, his constant clashes with other inmates and guards resulted in spending more than three years of a 10-year sentence for burglary in solitary confinement. <laughs> um, he was suffering no fools. Yeah, that's rough. Uh, because of his difficult and abrasive attitude, he was transferred to various prisons until his release in 1932 and with no money or occupation. Obviously, um, getting out of jail in general or prison in general is uh, real hard uh, for a lot of people. So uh, yeah. once, yeah, it's a problem uh, with our country. Uh, okay. Uh, once he was back on the streets of Harlem, he meets Stephanie St. Clair, who is the queen of several criminal organizations. Ooh. Yes, bitch. I know get about it. Her. I know. I didn't. You said Stephanie St. Clair? Yes. What a name. My yes. God. Yeah. Um, photos of her. She's just very like, I'm in this chair and I'm leaned back. What? <laughs> Pay me. I love it. Um, she was the leader of uh, the local gang, the 40 Thieves, and she was also a key investor in the numbers rackets in the neighborhood. She was very impressed by Bumpy's intelligence and the two quickly became fast friends, real partners in crime. Um, he quickly gained her trust and became her principal lieutenant and it was rumored in some circles that the two of them were doing kissy stuff, even though they were. Of course, he just got out of prison. Yeah. Um, even though she was 20 years older, Cougar. Mm-hmm. Um, while she uh, evaded the mafia and waged war against German Jewish mobster Dutch Schultz, born Arthur Flegenheimer. Um, and his men, so there was a, a Harlem war, basically, between mafias, um, and it was mostly her versus this Dutch Schultz guy, who looks what you think, like, he, he looks like a, he has like a, like a spoon with eyes. Um, <laughs> and then uh, the 26-year-old Johnson committed a series of crimes, including murder at her request. So he was kind of the... <clears throat> You know, the he was like the I don't know the general of mm-hmm. a group of people that were doing um, her bidding, uh, like fighting that war. Um, so, so some of what I'm going to say is coming from um, Bumpy Johnson's wife uh, Mamie, who they married in 1948. But it's some of her like memoirs. Um, she wrote uh, her own biography. And she said Bumpy and his crew of nine waged a guerrilla war of sorts and uh, picking off Dutch Schultz's men was easy since there were few other white men walking around Harlem during mm-hmm. the day. Um, by the end of the war, 40 people had been kidnapped or killed for their involvement. Interesting. With control over the pol- over police protection and influence at City Hall, Schultz and his allies in the mafia eventually dominated the Harlem numbers rackets. So they ended up, you know, kind of in the lead here. Johnson, who had earlier fought against Schultz and the mafia, was eventually won over by the promise that he would run the Harlem operations in exchange for protection by the mafia, then led by Charles Lucky Luciano. Mm. Uh, who yeah Schultz uh, is ultimately killed by orders from Lucky Luciano and then this agreement between Lucky and Bumpy lasted for four decades 
Uh, it also resulted in Johnson and Luciano making a deal that the Harlem bookmakers uh, could retain their independence from the Italian mob as long as they agreed to pass along a cut of their profits. So it's a little bit of a franchise, um, mm-hmm. but it seems like a really good you know, situation. Uh, after this meeting, Johnson and Luciano met regularly to play chess, uh, sometimes at Luciano's favorite spot in front of the YMCA on 135th Street. And then St. Clair went her own way a little bit after this war. Um, she was like, you know, I think I'm done with criminal activity uh, because she had served time for uh, shooting her husband (laughs) (laughs) Uh, who was a con man. So, you know, sometimes you got to let them know. I know what you're up to. Um, And then let's see. Oh, it is said that she maintained the protection of Johnson until his death. So Uh, with St. Clair out, Bumpy Johnson is now the one and only godfather of Harlem. Um, As such, Anything that happened in the crime world, uh, in the neighborhood, it needed to get his seal of approval first. And if anybody didn't do that, they paid the price. Uh, For example, his rival, Ulysses Rollins, and this is from his biography by his wife, uh, by Bumpy's wife. Bumpy spotted Rollins. He pulled out a knife and jumped on Rollins. And the two men rolled around on the floor for a few moments before Bumpy stood up and straightened his tie. Rollins remained on the floor, his face and body badly gashed, and one of his his eyeballs hanging from the socket by ligaments. Jangling around and shit. (laughs) Bumpy calmly stepped over the man, picked up a menu, and said he suddenly had a taste for spaghetti and meatballs. Ew. (laughs) Cold. Yep. That's funny. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, He also had a soft side. Uh, Some compared him to Robin Hood because of the way he used his money and power to help the impoverished communities in his neighborhood. He delivered gifts and meals to neighbors in Harlem and even supplied turkey dinners on Thanksgiving. He hosted a Christmas party every year. It, it, just just the sweetest guy, as long Minus as you keep your violence. eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as his wife noted, he was known to lecture younger generations about studying academics instead of crime, although he, quote, always maintained a sense of humor about his brushes with the law. So he's like, I mean, but go to school. Yeah. Uh, he also had affairs with New York celebrities, such as the editor of Vanity Fair, Helen Lawrenson, and the singer and actress Lena Horne. Oh, yeah, hot. I know. Um, he had two daughters, Ruthie and Elise, the latter of whom was from another relationship, not his relationship with his wife. So he and Mamie had Ruthie, and then there's Elise. Uh, he also rubbed elbows with celebrities like Billie Holiday and Sugar Ray Robinson. Oh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In 1951, he received his longest prison sentence, a 15-year term for selling heroin. <laughs> and it eventually sends him to our favorite prison. Folsom? Alcatraz. Alcatraz! Hey! Uh Interestingly enough, the Harlem Godfather was eight years into his prison sentence in Alcatraz on June 11th, 1962, when Frank Morris and Clarence and John England (gasps) 
made the only uh, successful escape from the institution. He wow. was there. Um, this guy's like the Forrest Gump of gangsters. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he is. Some, oh, he yes. I want to see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some suspect that Johnson had something to do with the infamous escape. Ooh. Just then. And unconfirmed reports allege that he used his mob connections to help them secure a boat to San Francisco. His wife theorized that he himself didn't escape alongside them because of his desire to be a free man rather than a fugitive. Hmm. I'm, that makes sense to me. Yeah, I... And if you, what, you said he was six years into his sentence? Mm-hmm. Or eight years, okay. something like that. Yeah. It's like, you're already you're halfway. More than halfway, yeah. Yeah. Um, also, like, I don't know. If you're a crime boss, you're already looking over one shoulder. I don't need to be looking over both. Maybe. Or, like, if you're already on guard, what? why not just continue yeah. being on guard? Like, go escape. But also, did they... survive we don't know and was he really a part of it was he really a part of it probably not maybe it's just Um, old and tired it was like you kids do what you're gonna do y'all go nuts right yeah i'm in my 50s yeah uh let's see bumpy johnson returns to harlem following his release in 1963 and while he may have still had the love and respect of the neighborhood it was no longer the same place as when he left because he's been gone for 12 years um, the neighborhood had largely fallen into disrepair as drugs had flooded the area, mostly thanks to the mafia leaders with whom Johnson had once cooperated in years past. Yeah, I'm, we all he know was selling heroin. Yeah. You're not technically part of the solution in this situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's also like, yeah, this you're is not just... being the change you want to see in the world, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, so in hopes of rehabilitating the neighborhood and advocating for its black citizens, politicians and civil rights leaders drew attention to Harlem's struggles. One leader was Bumpy Johnson's old buddy, Malcolm X. Dang. Uh, Bumpy and Malcolm X have been friends since the 40s when the latter was still a street hustler. Uh, now a powerful community leader, Malcolm X asked Bumpy Johnson to provide protection for him as his enemies uh, in the nation of Islam, whom with whom he had just split, stalked him. So we've got the Scientology aspect of, oh, you, you're leaving? <laughs> Not now. We're going to stalk you. So uh, let's see. Malcolm X soon decided that he shouldn't be associating with a known criminal like Bumpy Johnson. So it was like a, hey, can you get me? And then he's like, oh, actually, I don't know. Sorry, bro. Um, and so he had asked his guards to stand down. And just weeks later, Malcolm X was assassinated by his enemies in Harlem. Mm-hmm. Unrelated, mm-hmm. likely, but also like maybe. Another Forrest it, Gump it, thing. If Bumpy yeah. had still been around, would he not have been assassinated? Right. right. Um <clears throat> In December of 1965, uh, frustrated by police surveillance of him, he staged a sit-down strike, this is Bumpy, at a police station and refused to leave. He was arrested and charged with refusal to leave a police station. 
and he was acquitted because w- mm-hmm. what the fuck is that? Yeah. What's that? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Hey. He just made that little up. Hey, criminal, dude. get out of here. Right. You're not allowed to be here. Uh, we'll arrest hey. you if you don't. And then he's like, eh. Uh, uh, who's winning now? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're breaking the. My mom says you have to go home, blah. <laughs> Cops. Um. Let's see. Oh, Bumpy Johnson died of a heart attack during the early hours of July seventh, nineteen sixty-eight. Um. It was like two a.m. He was at uh. Man, I had it written somewhere. He was at a diner, and I forget the name of it. It starts with a W. Um, anyway, he laid in the arms of one of his closest friends, Junie Bird, and everyone's kind of like, whoa, that was fast, and that wasn't violent. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> natural causes, what? Um, Disappointing. <laughs> yeah. So thousands of people attend his funeral including dozens of uniformed police officers who were stationed on the surrounding rooftops shotguns in hand Uh. Um, and in his biography his wife writes they must have thought that Bumpy was going to get up from the casket and start raising (laughs) hell (laughs) that's cute Um, his not being more of the public consciousness so you know when i said lucky luciano everyone's like oh i've heard of that right um so you know he was he was pretty much as big as him um and then you know obviously a lot of people attribute this to he's a black man in power in the middle 20th century Uh um he that said his story has started to reach more people with film and television uh, the Cotton Club, American Gangster, even though Mamie says uh, this is boo on this. Uh, and this American Gangster is why we need more black people telling these stories, um, which there's a series for epics that came out in 2019 called The Godfather of Harlem. And the creators are Chris Br- Brincato uh, and Paul Eckstein, who is a person of color. So they had good things to say about that series on epics, but the other movies, they were like, this isn't really accurate. So if you want to see more about his life in a little bit of a Hollywood way, uh, go check out the Godfather of Harlem on epics, which everyone, everyone has epics. I still don't even know what that channel is. It's encore. Oh, it's encore. Got it. So, that's Bumpy Johnson. Oh, Bumpy. Well, wow. Well, somewhere in there you mentioned that uh, once you're in prison, it's hard to get out, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, but have, have I got a story for you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that was no. What a transition. Yeah, that was 10 I out of 10. Know. Thank you. Have you guys heard of the dog lady? No. All right, good. <clears throat> Wait, the one in, maybe the one in New so, York. Okay, nope. Okay. okay, thank God. All right, so Toby Door, Toby Door, Toby Door was mm-hmm. born in I don't know, nineteen sixty fifties, late fifties. I don't know. I didn't look that up. Sorry. Uh, and raised in the Kansas City area. 
And she was a good kid. She got straight A's. She followed all the rules. She uh, married the only boy she ever dated. She went to church. She built a career. Um, and uh, just like one of those good rule following, wholesome Midwestern women, hashtag blessed. Uh, but she got herself in a pickle. The one time she broke bad. This is a breaking bad story. Woohoo. All right. So um, she was the oldest of seven kids, five girls, two boys. And uh, when she was five, her dad burned his face up trying to get rid of some willow branches in his backyard. And so like his face melted off right in front of her when she was five. Oh, God. Uh, and oh she said God. it was like, it was like, like a Raiders of the Lost Ark Yeah. She said it was like seeing my mom take off her pantyhose at night, watching his skin come off. Anyway, uh, so he was in the hospital for eight months. Yeah. <laughs> it sure does. And Toby felt like responsible to raise her kids. So she sort of became the mom of the family. Um, her siblings would later say she was less like a sister than a third parent. Her father eventually recovered and then went to work on the railroad, God damn it, as a machinist, and he would never complain. And he internalized that with Toby, like whatever life throws at you, never complain, just figure it out. So she was a perfectionist. She never got drunk. She never tried drugs. She was president of the pep club and um, she was always positive. Married her high school sweetheart at 20 bought a house not far from her parents, had three kids in four years. Uh, the middle child died as an infant, so she had two sons that she raised. Her husband she was a Irish firefighter. triplets? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, yeah, right? Husband was a firefighter. She worked at the utility company and took her sons to baseball, basketball, football, and soccer practice and games and attended college at night where she graduated summa cum laude with a double major in accounting and business administration. I think you know what kind of woman Toby is. She's what have a I go done with my dash I'm, I'm a getter. failure. Yeah. Go get her. Fuck go yeah. Get her. In 1987, she's 30 years old, she starts working at Sprint. She becomes a project manager specializing in systems development and she did a 14-year meteoric career there that went when Sprint exploded in the dot-com bust of 2001, and she had mm. to start over. Uh, mm. So she started working part-time at a vet clinic because she'd always loved animals. And uh, in 2004, she was like working at this vet clinic, and she asked one of the vets about a lump on her neck, and the vet said, yeah, I would check that out. And it turned out to be thyroid cancer. She was 47 years old. She had to stay at home. She had to leave her job to do chemotherapy. Mm. It was treatable. She's going to live, but she was reevaluating her life. During the time that she was sitting home in the chemo fog, she watched a lot of Animal Planet, including a reality show called Cell Dogs. Do you guys remember Cell Dogs? Mm-mm. All right. So it's this show that focuses oh, on different C-E-L-L. Yeah. Yeah. Different prisons would adopt dogs. They had dog adoption programs and they'd follow prisoners who adopted a dog and show how they got to be all big old softies when they had a puppy. <clears throat> so she was like, fuck yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start a prison dog program. I'm going to start a prison dog program. I'm going to get all these prisoners in Kansas City dogs. And her husband, <clears throat> who you'll see is the villain of the story, says, Toby, that's just TV. People don't do that in real life. So she was like, oh, 
Okay, so she started just a regular dog fostering program, and she made it. Uh, she made a website, and uh, it put out so much marketing about it that within a week, she heard from somebody at the Lansing Correctional Facility out of nowhere asking if she'd have any interest in starting a program there. She was like, "Yeah, that was my dream at the begin with. Aww. I actually got it." Fucking face, shitty husband. Yeah. Two days later, she goes to the prison, gives the executive staff a formal presentation because, again, double major in accounting and business administration. She's killing it. Two days after that, she brings seven dogs to the prison, and the Safe Harbor Prison Dog Program is born. So what happens is inmates who qualify with good behavior get to um, foster dogs, and then if they're doing really well, they get to adopt the dogs into the prison, and then that dog stays in the cell with them and like becomes their little roommate, and it helps rehabilitate them. Soon the prison is full of dogs. She's doing such a great job. She's got other prison prisoners helping her like manage the dogs. So many inmates want them. In 18 months, she facilitated 1,000 adoptions. She's posing for photos in the local news. She's getting donations out the wazoo from across the country. She becomes basically the most successful dog prison placement program in the country. And her husband, of course, resents this. So a little bit of background on her husband. I, I know. I'll go back to the dog content. Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, they weren't happy, really. Uh, 20 years into her marriage or whatever it was at this point, 10 years in, uh, he played golf all the time. So a few months after they got married, she said, I'm going to take lessons so we can play together. But when she told her husband, he said, hey, before you take lessons, you better find someone you want to golf with. And she said, well, I thought I could golf with you. And he said, no, nah, I golf with my friends. Fuck this so guy. that's the kind of relationship they're having. Meanwhile, in prison, uh, she's working with inmates uh, and trying to uh, identify inmates who can help her evaluate dog-inmate partnerships, basically. Like, who's going to be a good dog for this inmate? Who's a good daddy? Uh, and she meets a man named John Maynard. In the story I'm getting this from, which is from The Atlantic, by the way, and I highly recommend it, John Maynard, when she met him, the sun was behind him and it looked like a halo. So he walks up to her and says, I'm probably the best dog handler you've ever met. And she was like, all right. And he was. So they become fast friends. He evaluates the dogs. He pets them. He finally adopts one himself, a pit bull mix. And she was like, this guy's cool. He's six foot two. He's got close cropped red hair. He's got a tattoo over his navel that says hooligan. He walks <laughs> with a swagger. She's he's, he's 23 years younger than him. Uh, and one and a half feet taller than him. So she's just like looking up to him like, oh, oh. he's an angel. And she, mm-hmm. Exactly. And uh, she also was dealing with inmates making sexual comments about her. It is still a prison, even if you soften them up with dogs. So uh, she also had an incident with one. She's 47. Okay. Yeah. Uh, She's also getting a particularly rough one who's been bothering her. And one day he starts yelling at her and flipping out shit. And he looks like he's going to punch her. And none of the other inmates want to step up to intervene because he's kind of the big scary guy in the prison. Guess who does? John Maynard walks up and steps him down. And she's like, my hero. Okay. Our angel. Nobody's going to mess with John. Our angel, right? He walks her out to the prison gate. Uh, That was Sunday. 
The next day, the warden said, hey, you can have Maynard be your personal bodyguard in the uh, prison from now on if you want. She says, great. This so they is start like spending. a romance novel. Mm-hmm. This is a, mm-hmm. some smut. Mm-hmm. Really. <laughs> so they start spending every day together. Mm-hmm. Now, the warden does dispute this part of the story, but she says this is what happened. So, you know, and nobody's really thinking too much about it because Toby's 47 years old, married, religious, and responsible citizen. So it's no big deal. The two of them hanging out, they figure Maynard's not going to do anything, you know, too crazy because Toby's there to keep him straight. So one morning, uh, Maynard noticed that Toby looks all upset and asks her what's wrong. She said, I've been at the hospital all night. My father had cancer and he needed surgery and I came straight from the intensive care unit. Well, said Maynard, thank God your husband was there to drive you. He wasn't there, she said. He said, there's no sense in both of us not getting a good night's sleep. Maynard Uh. shook his head. Toby, why are you married to him? She thought about it. She didn't have an answer. She kept thinking about it for days, and she still couldn't come up with an answer. She realized it wasn't a marriage. It was a convenient house-sharing arrangement. And she tried to leave him 10 years earlier, but her family liked him and he didn't really do anything wrong except for neglect. Maynard was real sweet to her and he'd flirt with her all the time. And sometimes their hands would touch, even though there was a no touching policy while they were like, you know, looking for ticks on dog's fur. This really is. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. A romance. Yeah. Novel. I'm imagining the cover. Yeah. Now. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. So. Poor sex-starved 47-year-old Toby, who probably hasn't gotten any in decades, gets real good and horny for Maynard. The electricity builds between them. They start whispering that they love each other. He said, you know, if only I could just escape and be with her, Uh. be with you. And she laughs because that would break so many rules, she said. But he keeps bringing it up. And sometimes she drives around town. She sees a for rent sign and thinks, man, if, if Maynard was out of prison, we could get this little apartment together. Uh, in now a later I, interview, Maynard's. Now I'm mad. <laughs> do, we, do we know what? He's, I, it's, this is a manipulation now. I'm mad. Well, yeah. But what is he in prison for? Well, he was in prison for uh, carjacking where somebody got murdered. He didn't pull the trigger. Okay. He was part of the carjacking. Uh, so he still got thrown like in there. not like wife killing. died. Yeah. Nope. Nope. He was just part of a dumb crime that went bad. <clears throat> uh, okay. In a later interview, Maynard said that he was just talking about escaping as a joke. But when Toby said, let's do it, he became obsessed. So they started right. working on, on the problem. Like how to escape. Yeah. Uh, and of course, as like a MBA analytical thinker, she's like thinking of it as a puzzle, like just trying to figure it out. Eventually they figure out that there's 18 by 36 inch cardboard boxes everywhere that the inmates use to carry belongings from cell to cell when they move. And Maynard lost 20 pounds and did lots of little experiments to figure out a way to pack an inside of one. And he figured it out in a dream. He dreamed a way to pretzel himself into an 18 by 36 inch box. And when he tried it the next day, it worked. What? So we told Toby. Is six two fig- ounce? Mm-hmm. 18 by 36. Yeah. Wow. So we told Toby that. He's like, I could get in a box and you could carry the box out. And she's like, I'm, I'm 4'10". I can't carry your 200 and something pound ass in a box. 
Yeah. Then they realized an 18 by 36 inch box is just big enough to put inside of a dog crate. So they're working this out. Uh, Maynard said, hey, I could really use a cell phone so we could talk to each other anytime. An official one would be $500, but she was like, that's too much money. So she snuck a phone in. And this is the first time she broke the rules. And she was like, oh, this is kind of fun. So she sneaks a phone into him. They talk every day, all day. Uh, her husband actually catches the text saying, good morning, baby, I love you. But she says it's the wrong number. And he believed her because he was like, my naive thought was if she wasn't having sex with me, she wouldn't be having sex with anyone. Because right. <laughs> he's like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So eventually the plan came together. Toby pulled out 40K from her retirement fund, bought a used truck for $5,000, found a storage unit that had just been built so it didn't have any security cameras, and figured out a day where Maynard could sneak into a box, the box could be put into the dog crate, the dog crate could be loaded on the truck with the dogs, and they could just drive off. Dang. And her, her sons at this point were 21 and 25. Her husband didn't love her. She was yeah. like, let's do it. New life. Yeah, so yeah. they decided to do it in one cold February day in 2010. I think a gnat just tried to fly up my nose. Sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was very weird. So it's February. It's also in Lansing, Michigan? No, it's in Kansas City. Okay. It's cold. It's cold. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, night before the escape... She's uh, watching TV and her husband's on the recliner. He gets up and says, I'm going to bed. He says, good night. And she says, goodbye. Oops. Uh, and she thought, oh, crap. He's going to ask me why I said goodbye. No. But he didn't. No. Okay. So she didn't <laughs> sleep all night. Shit, yeah, he doesn't care. Didn't sleep all night out of nerves. Comes in the next day. Uh, a wagon is being pulled out with the crate on it. The wagon's tires were like, riding real low and she's like surely somebody's going to notice but nobody did uh she loads the dogs into the back and she asks for some inmates to help her with the crate and they do and they hoist it up and throw it in like it's nothing she thought surely he's not in the box this didn't really happen because if he was in the box they would have noticed how heavy it was so when she's driving she just calls back john are you in there are you in the crate and there's no answer she's like thank god that was just all a crazy idea i had mm-hmm it didn't really happen. I didn't really ha- help somebody escape from prison. And then an arm burst out of the box and she heard Maynard laughing. She stopped the car, pulled over, helped him out of the crate, and he's all giddy and shit. And he changes into the clothes she'd brought him and he goes, drive, Toby, drive. And they yeah. headed to, his, to her house, put the dogs away, even though Maynard said they'd save time if they just let him out in the field. But she's like, I'm not just going to drop the dogs off in a field. She's still a good person. So, yeah. Of course. So uh, Maynard ran around the house while she was putting the dogs away in the barn and took two of her husband's pistols. Um, and Toby was like, why do we have that? And he's like, we're carrying a lot of cash, aren't we? She's like, oh, okay. And they go to the storage facility. They drive the truck in, uh, lock the unit, hop or drive the van in, lock the unit, hop into this new unregistered truck and drive off to a lakeside cabin in Tennessee that Maynard had reserved under a fake name using the cell phone. They stayed off the interstates. They stayed off the highways. This is a brilliant plan, right? What year is this? 2010. Okay. 
so they're driving around the Great Smoky Mountains, taking this really circuitous route. Maynard's driving. He's manic. He's like, look, Toby, I'm driving. It's been 10 years. I can still drive. And she's like, Ugh, right? Because she's like, holy shit, holy shit. And he's uh, making them stop every five seconds to buy little snacks like chocolate donuts and Twizzlers. He's just loving life, right? Well, yeah. Takes him 24 hours to do a 10-hour drive. They get to the cabin. Toby's exhausted. She hasn't slept in like 36 hours. Um, they get to the cabin. She opens her laptop to try to find the directions. She couldn't remember. And Maynard gets all agitated. This isn't a game. This isn't a game. She said he went ballistic, started screaming, driving all over the place, hitting the steering wheel, saying, I don't even know why I brought you. I should just throw you out of this truck right now and keep on going. I don't need you. And she's like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. So she starts crying. And then all of a sudden, he's cool again. And they pull over to diner and they ask for directions and he's all sweet. They get to the cabin and then they fucked. And she said, that was probably the best part of our relationship, honestly. Aww. They spent a week at the cabin. She bought a mandolin. Maynard played her brown eyed girl. He bought a box of chocolates. <laughs> they held each other. This is so was- weird. <laughs> this is actually... Karina's writing a novel and she's yeah. like doing the outline for us right now. <laughs> We're being tested. Yes. She said it was the best Valentine's Day she ever had. Mm-hmm. He'd fill the bathtub with bubbles and light candles and shit and tell her to relax and tell her, her outfits look nice. He said her fried chicken was the best he'd ever tasted, that kind of shit, you know? Aww. So they wanted to lay low for a few weeks, but he was just excited to go out in the world and see things and do things. She wanted some dogs, but he said they couldn't, and she missed having a pet, so they go to a pet store. Uh, and he said, I'm going to buy you a parakeet. And she liked this little yellow one, but he said, I'm getting a blue one. I'm buying this parakeet, not you. Don't think you can tell me what to do. I'm not your fucking husband. Jesus. So she's like, okay. Guy. She leaves the store, goes to the truck. He comes back, gives her the blue parakeet, and said, I named it Leonard, after Leonard Skinner, because nice. their band sings Freebird, and that's me. I'm Freebird. And she said, I don't like that name. He said, you're not naming this bird. I'm naming it. His name's Leonard. Oh, my <laughs> God. What? Why is this happening? This is great. This is so weird. Yes. <laughs> she sticks her finger in the cage and the bird bites Leonard her. Bites anyway, her. <laughs> uh, five days in, they go to Nashville to see Walk the Line. And uh, Toby loves loves or uh, john maynard loves it he's like i'm johnny cash i I write songs and music you're my june carter i never thought i'd get you now look i got you i got you and they go to a guitar store and he's trying out thousand ten thousand dollar guitars just wait he wasn't he wasn't like this at all in prison i don't know what he was like in prison he was he was an angel he saved on his best behavior trying to coax this almost 50 year old woman into helping him escape (laughs) So he had a, he had a really, he was having a really good time. It's such a good time. He thought, let's celebrate. Let's go to McDonald's. So I go to McDonald's and when mm. we get there and there's Wi-Fi, and the Wi-Fi loads some alerts onto her phone. And one of the alerts is a headline that says dog lady implicated in escape. Oh. <laughs> she screams. And to this day, if you want to find the story. You just got to type dog lady prison escape. Cause that's, she became dog lady. Yeah. Oh, that's and, sucks. Uh, so she freaks out. She's like, you said I wouldn't get in trouble. You say that, that they think you manipulated me and I'd be fine. He's like, oh, you're fine. You won't get thrown in jail. They'll blame it all on me. Because I did manipulate you. Mm-hmm. 
he calms her down. He says, don't worry, we're going to make a fire. So he said, what? let's go make a fire in the fireplace at the cabin. It'd be romantic. They get back to uh, the town, but there's no place to buy firewood. And he gets super mad and the snow starts falling and he's jerking the wheel back and forth, causing the truck to fishtail. He's like, I can't believe it. Can't find any fucking firewood. I'm just gonna drive this truck off a cliff. And she's like, shit. Anyway, on the twelfth day of this Christmas, <laughs> yeah, they wake up and they put on some wigs they bought the day before. Now the thing with the wigs is they wanted to stay in disguise, right? So she got herself a wig that was a totally different color from her hair, and she wanted him to wait wear just like an old man gray hair wig, but he refuses to because he's young and he doesn't want to wear a fucking old man wig. He's like, I'm younger than you. I don't have to wear gray hair. So he buys like long, blonde, like deaf leopard wig that just looks super ridiculous and draws all sorts of attention to him. Oh my God. <laughs> so they put on their guy, stupid just wig. Just shave your fucking head. Uh, yeah. <sighs> okay. So he puts on his stupid deaf leopard wig and they go to Chattanooga to see an IMAX movie because he'd never seen an IMAX before. Oh, Jesus. Okay. They want to see this documentary about sharks, but they get there late. The shark movie already started, so they have to watch one for lions. And afterwards, they go to a barbecue restaurant where he gets all mad because he got a stain on his shirt. And then he wants to go see the snake exhibit at the zoo. But they go to the zoo and it's closed, and he's mad because he wanted to see the snakes. And you get the idea. Oh, anyway. my God. Yeah, he sounds insufferable. <laughs> he's getting really freaked out. He, she realizes that he's got her phone, he's got her money. Uh, he could leave her at any time. Um, and they're at a Sears buying a GPS because he's mad at her for getting lost all the time, being late everywhere. And uh, she comes back into the store and she can't find him anywhere. And she starts to panic because she's like, this is it. He's abandoned me. And then he jumps out from like a, the clothing rack. Oh and my God. A what a fucking psycho. <laughs> he's, he's laughing his ass off. And as they leave the mall, they walk right past two U.S. Marshals. So as they're driving back to their cabin, all of a sudden they see a big, bright wall of light. And Toby's like, oh, that must be construction or something. And uh, Maynard's like, no, Toby, this is for us. She goes, what? What's for us? And then there's like 50 police cars pull up behind him with the, the sirens flaring and stuff like that. Dang. And she's like, oh, my God, they turned on the lights. You got to pull over. That's the law. And he's like, uh Okay, but then the like cars start swerving around in front of them, and Maynard gets all pissed off. He's like, "They're trying to kill us." He said, "I'm just going to drive till I run out of gas," and then he floors it. Ugh. She looks at the gas gauge. They have three quarters of a tank. Fuck. He takes oh, off a hundred miles an hour. <laughs> it's weaving That's around too in the much. cars. Eighteen <laughs> wheelers. Eighteen wheelers flying by their face. At one point, they pull off the highway, drive across the median, go through some pine trees and bushes, and then pop back out on the other side of the highway. Now they're heading 100 miles an hour in the opposite direction on the freeway. It is a full-on high-speed movie fucking chase. Dog lady. Tires screeching, police cars flying by, U.S. Marshals, helicopters. Suddenly, uh, he loses control of the car and starts slamming straight towards a tree. Toby prays to God, please let me die. So this is just over with. No shit. And they hit the tree. And then she can still hear. She can still see. And she sees Maynard asking her over and over again, are you okay? And she's okay. And a cop with a black machine gun pulls up, pulls him out of the car and arrests them both. Toby gets only one year added to his sentence. 
for all of that shit. Because he was already serving like a 15-year sentence and he'd only done like 12 months of it. So they just tacked one more year on. Um, she got sentenced. <laughs> she got sentenced to 27 months. Oh, okay. So I was like, her- if she no. says years, I'm going to be pissed. Mm-hmm. She did her two years in prison. Her family completely disowned her. Everybody's super embarrassed that she's like this famous dog lady, prison escape artist or whatever. Sons won't talk to her. Husband divorces her on her way into jail. She signs the paperwork and then goes straight to jail. Oh, um, I mean, no yeah, love loss, anyway, though. A monopoly move. Maynard. Oh, sorry. Did I say one year? Ten years added to a sentence. Oh, Ten okay. I, I was I like, fact one year. Okay. Ten yeah. years makes a lot more sense. Uh, so this won't surprise you, but uh, Toby was a model prisoner and became like a super famous prisoner in the prison and made friends with all the ladies. And she said it was just gossip in high school the whole time. And she started all these programs to help people get their MBAs and stuff. And like she got out on good behavior. And now she has written a book about it that is coming out soon. Look Mm. for it. I was bookstores i was gonna say I, I wouldn't have been surprised if she went back to working they were like eh, toby fucked up that one time but we'll just let her come back yeah it's fine no no not quite she couldn't go back to being the prison dog lady so now she is she has been in a writer's group which is how like through the grapevine i found out about her and then like i looked it up and then there was this long profile in the atlantic about her huh by a, a writer in the Atlantic who was also in her writer's group and she, while she's working on her memoirs. Because if you didn't kill nobody and you already served your time, you can totally make money on your crimes and there's no son of Sam law. And yeah. uh, it turns out the only thing she did right was commit crimes so hilarious and interesting that she could actually make a pretty good bundle on this book. Yeah. It sounds yeah. like. Someone call up A24 and get them to make this mm-hmm. movie. I know. Because yeah. I'd see it. I would too. So good. Behind so Hearts. That's, that's what it's <laughs> called. <laughs> that's what I'm calling okay. it. Okay. Okay. Uh, I don't know what it's called. I don't know. I do like that you both were like, that's probably what it's really yeah, called. Yeah, I was like, I believe it. Yeah, probably. Uh, it is called Escape Your Prison. <laughs> oh no! I mean, uh, it's the only way she could get out of that marriage. You know, you had to do something. Yeah, Poor you got to go to TobyDoor.com. Well, uh, you know, yeah. I support her. Really, yeah. all of the stuff. She oh no, did. no, no! I'm sorry. It's called Unleashed. Uh, that's much better. That Escape sounds like the name of that con. wig he wore. Unleashed. Unleashed. Uh, dang. Well, yeah, I'd like to see that movie. Maybe we'll read the mm-hmm. book. Yeah. Uh, have a little book club and read her her compelling story. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, uh. That's <laughs> it's funny because yeah, it's so you know it's so recent that yeah, both of them can talk about their experience. 
That guy yeah. is just yeah, he sounds bananas. Fuck. The husband, by the way, for what it's worth, denies having said any of that shit to her and says, I actually built her like the dog thing in the barn. I was totally supportive and like Bullshit. she's like making it all up. So like there's a little bit of a he said, she said going on there. I don't believe him. Okay. <laughs> like I just I feel like I know his kind somehow. Yeah. Like Yeah. Like, but I kind of know her kind too. Yeah. I'm sure. Like, straight laced girl, like kind of yeah. needs some drama in her life and yeah. figures out how to stir it up. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. The only way she knows how. Um okay, let's do it. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I'm trying to conjure <laughs> the very little energy I have to uh, talk about something else that's very sensational. Oh. Um, it's Ooh. August Ooh. 1975. We have our Yay. man. His name is Sam Bronfman. B-R-O-N-F-M-A-N. Uh, maybe you know the name. Maybe you don't. The last name specifically. He is super fucking rich um he at the moment in august he's staying at this tudor mansion in yorktown heights in westchester new york and it's owned by his father edgar bronfman who is the patriarch of the bronfman family and they own the seagram's empire Oh, okay. Wait, he has children. Aren't there daughters? He has, the... and yes, yes. Okay. Are they we were, going no. to Nixium? No, this oh, is not Nixium. Okay. But those were the daughters. Okay. Yes. Okay. I was yeah. going to say that at the end, I'm but sorry. y'all remembered. Oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> I just, I it's know okay. too much about Nixium. <laughs> I know. Uh, yes. The, so the girls are Sam. So Sam is the son. Sam's. He's he's the oldest of the Bronfman kids. The girl Claire, the one who was mm-hmm. in Nexium and was recently sentenced to like a fuck ton. Like how many? Hold on. She uh I can't find it right right now but uh she was sentenced very recently to like at least a couple years in prison for her involvement in nexium the cult read by Ke- led yeah. by keith rainieri that we talked about a while ago so anyways today we're talking about sam the oldest brother of the seagram's family he is the heir apparent to the fortune because it was traditionally passed down in their family to the eldest son you know how that goes fuck them so it, everyone's hanging out in their super huge mansion in westchester new york and at around 11 30 sam's like i'm gonna hit the bars and they're like okay have fun bye and then at 1.45 a.m., the phone rings at their mansion home. The butler answers it, and he hears God. in Sam's voice, call my father. I've been kidnapped. Boom, boom, oh. boom. Sam has this been kidnapped. Be uh, it's a seven years, almost seven years. Seven year sentence, mm-hmm. which is wild. Okay, so 
you, those people have more money than God. So mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Bronfman family at the time of Sam's, ki- Sam's kidnapping was worth about $750 million, which in today's money is $3.5 billion. Uh, so kidnapping makes a lot of sense. You know, also yeah. the mm-hmm. fact that Claire can go to prison for seven years and have more money than fucking God and couldn't get out of it is kind of wild to me. That's mm-hmm. yeah, awesome. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, back to I Sam. Like Progress. So mm-hmm. Sam's abductors send a ransom note and they're like, we want all this money. And Edgar's like, holy shit, we have to get Sam back. Um, I do love my children, at least at the moment. Um, the abductors were like, if you don't give us this money, we're not only going to like kill your kid, but we're also going to like track you down and kill you and shoot you with bullets laced on with cyanide. And they're like, oh, wow. Eh, oh, that's so much worse oh. than just getting regular shot. Um, so, uh, God, I really hope everyone gets through my story to get to these two because good lord. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like, here's a history lesson, and y'all are like, here's drama. Yeah, we're here for the drama. So the Bronfman family is like, okay, okay, we'll do whatever you want to get our to get our boy back. Uh, <laughs> and they're like, great. Eight days later, it's finally going down. Edgar is like. August 16th, 3 a.m. I'm going to meet you below an aqueduct in Queens. And they're like, tight. This is going to be like a really great handoff spot. I love it. Edgar goes. And of course, the FBI is like all in on this. There's a hundred FBI agents just like idling on motorcycles, trucks, vans. There's a fucking helicopter somewhere. There's two decoy taxis. Somehow the handoff gets made and none of the federal agents are able to figure out where the guy went. He was just in this Oldsmobile and he just gets away super easy. And they're like, fuck. And then one of them was like, oh, wait, uh, I did take down the license plate, though. And they were like, well, at least fucking one of us did. And oh they end up looking it up and it's just, it's the abductor's car. He took his own car to the space or the place to the aqueduct <laughs> to do the handoff. And they're like, oh, well, we can just run this through the system and they fucking find him easy like that. So it's traced to an apartment in Flatbush in Brooklyn. And the guy who owns the apartment and the car, his name is Mel Patrick Lynch. He's a 37-year-old balding Irish immigrant known Mm. commonly as Fireman Lynch because he's (laughs) a fireman. Oh, people really liked him. He knew all the answers to Jeopardy all the time. That was like how they described him. Fireman loves Jeopardy. That's wow. a true description of you know, people, though. I mean, it's it so, is. It is. It accurately like, described my dad. Yeah, what a Put moment. Put it on a tombstone. Yeah. 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 So Jeopardy's also having a moment right it now. It is. Oh, mm-hmm. drama with Jeopardy. I'm glad they fucking fired that guy. Get him out of here. Get our LeVar Burton in like everyone wanted. Yeah. Okay. 
So the FBI is staking out Fireman Lynch's apartment. And while they're staking it out around the corner, there's two agents like sitting in, you know, an unmarked vehicle, whatever. And this guy is looking out his front door at these people on his street, these FBI agents, but he doesn't know that's what they are. And he's like, those motherfuckers look suspicious. Hey, little Sally, my daughter, why don't you go down the street to the police office or to the like local police precinct or whatever and tell them that there's fucking like two suspicious people sitting in front of our house. I'm pretty sure they're like hitmen or something crazy. And she's like, okay. So this dad, <laughs> this guy looking out happens to be Dominic Byrne who was Fireman Lynch's partner in crime. They're the ones who did this shit together. And Byrne is like, you know, obviously very wrong about Hitman just sitting in front of his house. Like, who would think that? Um, If you had just kidnapped. (laughs) Yeah, I guess if you had just kidnapped him. So Mr. Byrne, he's a 53-year-old limousine service operator. He's five foot four. He was known for theatrical blarney and greeting friends with a top of the morning while on walks with his family. This is not the 1800s, sir. Uh, It is not. It's 1975. (laughs) My God. Uh, He went to church every Sunday. He seemed like a regular, just top of the morning style dude. Um, Yeah, we all know those. When the police come, they realize pretty quickly, like, oh, these motherfuckers are uh, FBI agents. Like, they're not hitmen. And they go to the Byrne home, and Mr. Byrne immediately is like, "Uh, I was forced into a kidnapping. And they're like, wait, what? And he's like, yep, uh, it was definitely me and Fireman Lynch were the people who fucking kidnapped the Bronfman son. Also, I don't think I said this, but it was like a huge, it was on all the newspapers when it happened because, you know, he's like a rich kid gets kidnapped. Everybody knew what was going on. Um, And so he instantly confesses. He's like, hey, before you like legit go into Fireman Lynch's house, can you at least let me call him? And tell him, like, hey, man, shit's go- about to go down. Like, I want to call you- calm you down, smooth things over before y'all storm his house for some reason. And they're like, you know what? Hmm. That uh, makes total sense. What the fuck? And uh, so Mr. Byrne calls up Fireman Lynch and he's like, it's all over, Mel. They're coming over. And Fireman Lynch is like, ah! And then officers burst into the apartment. They find Sam Bronfman, the son, blindfolded. And Fireman Lynch is just sitting there on the couch with them. And they're like, okay, well, I mean, this was pretty cut and dry, tight. Fireman Lynch and Mr. Byrne are like, Okay, here's what happened. We've been friends for a really long time. And um, we were like, let's get some fucking money. And we decided to kidnap this super rich kid. 
it seems pretty, you know, like these guys confess to it. We know he, they did it right. This is it. Yeah. And so it, it goes to trial. Um, but before that, like the reason they knew Sam, um, is because he hired them. No, well, okay. So <laughs> these little leprechauns. In 1973, <laughs> Mr. Lynch and uh Mr. Byrne, sorry, I know. Uh they made their first trip out to this house where Sam lives. And uh Lynch points out, Fireman Lynch is like, there's no fences, there's like nothing that, you know, like, we're not going to get caught if we do this. So this is like a two-year plan, basically. They go out there over 30 times to visit and, like, stake out and make their ideas come to fruition. That's dedication. It, it, it really is. And then on August 8th, 1975, Fireman Lynch sees Sam pull into the garage and... It's after he's like had dinner with his father, something like that. He runs up to Mr. or to Sam Bromfin's BMW and he's like, This is a stick up. And uh, he handcuffs Sam, puts a 38 automatic into his ribs, and is like, You're coming with me. Bronfin spent days, those eight days, begging not to be killed, struggling to go to the bathroom. Blah, blah, blah. After they pick up the ransom, Fireman Lynch is like, I'm pretty sure the FBI is on onto us already. I don't know what I'm going to do. And Bronfman is like, just please don't fucking kill me. And he's like, yeah, seems reasonable type. Um, mm. And he's like, we're just going to give it up. And so they did. The bail hearing is set a month later. They... So Fireman Lynch and Mr. Byrne each get their own lawyer and they're like, okay, how are we going to fucking defend these guys? And of course the lawyers are like, well, clearly the best way to go is to say that Sam masterminded his own kidnapping. Mm -hmm. He kidnapped himself like Big Lebowski style, right? Every single thing that is happening in this story is half-assed. And like, (laughs) it's so, it's so fun. Like, we've got all these FBI agents and someone's like, I got the license. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, So, sorry. By the time the trial begins in October of 1975, uh, Fireman Lynch is like, my confession was coerced. Uh, it was bullshit. Um, I've got a whole new story to tell. And his mm-hmm. lawyer is, um, his last name is de Blasio. Love it. Isn't that, wasn't that, is, mm-hmm. that's a famous, it's, he's not related to any of the famous people as far as I know who have the name de Blasio. Um, He's like, okay, so what actually happened? Fireman Lynch says he and San Bromfin 
were in fact lovers. They met at a bar in June 1974, oh. shortly after, or shortly thereafter, they start boning. Uh, he said that they used the pool house of the Bronfen family and like they would hook up there. And the reason that Mr. Byrne got involved was because he would drive Fireman Lynch there to do like favors and all this stuff. And that's why they were taking all these trips out there not to surveil Sam Bromfman on the family property. Um, (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So they finally get to saying um, Sam Bronfman had a desire to shake down his family for cash. And it was Sam's idea to stage his own kidnapping. Fireman Lynch is like, yep, that's exactly what happened. Sam Bronfman threatened to inform the fire department that he was gay, which is why he was, you know, like, so that's how Sam manipulated Fireman Lynch into being part of this staged kidnapping is what they're claiming. Um, The prosecutor... Jeffrey Orlando and assistant district attorney in Westchester never broached the subject of their secret love affair, supposed secret love affair, because, quote, being gay, being called gay was much, much worse than Mr. Orlando said. It was 1976 and the topic of homosexuality was so taboo that he as the prosecutor was like, there's no, I'm not even going to touch on this because all people will focus on is the gay part. And so it's not going to be helpful in any way. Um, The old gay part. Yeah, the old gay part. So despite his, (laughs) their story lacking logic or evidence, Fireman Lynch was like the best storyteller. And He's on trial for four days on the witness stand, and the fucking jury is just like, tell me more, tell me more. <laughs> and um, the FBI and the NYPD are like, this is so dumb. Like, there's n- no reason, there's nothing is backing this up, and this jury is just eating it. Like, they fucking love it. And Lynch is like, yeah, that's right, bitch. Look at me, look at me. And uh, they end up uh, basically siding with Lynch. Um, The entire trial is swayed by Fireman Lynch being such a great talker that they find them, like, not fucking guilty, even though they had... (laughs) you know, confess to it. And Sam, like when they found Sam, like he had clearly been kind of fucked up. Like there were, he had been like taped up and shit. And there was like, you know, he, he was damaged clearly (laughs) from this kidnapping. And so this, the lawyer who was representing 
um, Lynch, Mr. Orlando was like, I have, it's, I, I have so much guilt for this. And so he gets them off, but he still is, uh, he spends the rest of his life being like fucked up by this. Hold on. Sorry. This is a lot of information. I'm trying to get to the part where I want. Um, sorry. It wasn't, it was de Blasio, the one who felt guilty. I'm sorry. I fucked it up. Uh, so de Blasio waits 45 <laughs> years. So basically until now to be like, Hey, I need to deathbed confess some stuff. And it's that this was <laughs> all a fucking lie. <laughs> we are the ones who made up the story about them having sex. We made up the whole idea of Sam kidnapping himself, basically. And I feel like such a piece of shit <clears throat> for doing this. He says, neither... Sam nor Lynch were gay as far as anyone ever knew, and they certainly were not lovers. I want it what? to be clear that all who may ever – so he's writing this down. All who may ever read the – may ever read the pages that Samuel Bronfren was not part of the kidnapping. Uh, he writes this big tell-all memoir, like I said, 50 years later – uh Mr. de Blasio's ethical breach uh just ate away at his conscience for so long that he had to do this before he died. Um he did say his obligation was always to his clients, but uh I think now Lynch is dead at this point <laughs> and de Blasio's on his way out and he's like I have to I have to tell all these people. And Sam is like, you fucking see? Like, it ruined <laughs> Sam's life. So Sam, obviously, he's like, yeah, I did fucking get kidnapped. I was held hostage for eight days. And I ain't gay. And I'm also not gay. Like, the fact that all of this stuff came out back then, that wasn't true. Uh he ended up not inheriting the family business. It went to his younger brother, Edgar Jr., who basically, he didn't run it into the ground, but he's made, like, very uh, questionable decisions on, um, like, he, they sold all like the Seagram's shit mm -hmm. and like invested what? in um, what did he create? Universal Beanie music. Mm -hmm. He got into Beanie Babies. Beanie Babies. He got into like music and that type of stuff. I don't know. It kind of reminds me if you've watched um, Succession on HBO, mm -hmm. how the oldest son like really wants to be involved in like music and like cooler media shit, but it's just like not working out. Hmm. Their family is still one of the richest family, richest families in the world. Um, they're number 1249, according to Forbes, their net worth is $2.5 billion 
at the moment. Um, like I said, Sam's basically his whole life was completely ruined and everyone thought he was a liar and a closeted homosexual, which really fucked his shit up. Um, yeah. And that family, like I said, is uh, the home family of our girl, Claire Bronfman, who went on to be part of Nexium and is now spending seven years in prison for it. Uh, but yeah, so nobody would have ne- really known the truth had it not been for de Blasio's, or is that, mm-hmm. am I saying it right? His um, deathbed, well, memoir confession, I guess. Uh, but yeah, this is all also from an article that was in the New York Times, um, by a guy named Ooh. Alex Traub. How so. insane is it though when that jury was like not guilty? Like, yeah. how insane could that have felt where you're like, holy right. shit, yep. They believed every word of all of these millions of lies we yep. just told. Yeah. He was just amazing. a really charismatic fireman. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. that's I'm this- sorry. I it's feel bad for Sam. Too. I'm actually really, pr- I feel bad for Sam a little bit, but I really like the idea that you can pull off something like that and then you get that wonderful moment at the end of your life where he goes guys i have some deathbed confessions to make yeah that's that's the dream that's my dream i've got to do a deathbed confession yeah just i just want to confess things on my deathbed yeah Um, hey guys remember 40 years ago Mm -hmm. (laughs) 45 years ago um Mm -hmm. So Edgar Bronfman Jr. is still head of the family and of all their money and stuff. He was the CEO of Warner Music Group. Um, One of the things he bought, they also, they sold Seagram's to Vivendi Universal for like $6 billion Mm -hmm. or something. He's gotten involved in film production. He, yeah, he just, (sighs) he really wanted to do music shit. Just that much money makes me yawn. Sorry. Yeah. I can't imagine. Bore me with your dollars. Can't, can't even imagine. It's an unimaginable amount of wealth. Yawn. What else is new? Yeah. Yeah. If I can't picture it, it's Mm. not real. You know, tree falling in the forest. Exactly. So, my God, I think that's a good philosophy for life. Uh, Karina, I can't hear. Oh wait, there we go. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. we all got desynced. We're synced back. There we go. Yeah. Uh, What a roller! Like, I feel like I need to take a nap after. I feel like I need to take a nap as well. Ah. Y'all took my oh, ass no. on a ride. What? Oh my god, something's wrong with my lava lamp. <gasps> oh god, call the cops. Oh god, not the lava lamp. No, seriously. Lamp. Wait, Is it look on at this. Fire? Tell me, this. Does this look okay to you? Like, what's. Hold on. Oh. I mean, yeah. yeah that's how. That looks, it looks like it's trying to get out. Yeah. That's how it starts, you know? Like, you gotta warm up a lava lamp. 
How it's, long has it been on? Dang, I haven't seen a lava lamp uh, in a long time. How long have we been on? I guess an hour and a half. It's big. It's a big one. It's it's a vintage one because um, someone in Trisha's family bought lava lamps in the seventies as a tax write off, and then they took off, and it ended up being this big money making business. Anyway, so like her family has. Lava lamp money? She's the the heiress to the lava lamp fortune. Why have you not told that story? (laughs) My God. Because all we got out of it was this 1970s. A real lava lamp. A real lava lamp that's not doing so well. I mean, Spencer's has never seen Mm -mm. an OG lava lamp. Mm -mm. No, no, that thing is like 90 pounds. I'm just worried about it. Oh well. Anyway, That's sorry. That's how lava lamps look before them. they're fully lava. Before yeah. they're moving. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've just what? never caught it in this like larval stage. It's really creepy. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. just like what? So they bought a bunch of lava lamps before they took off. They what was that the decision? Company. Like? Oh. The whole company. So they bought they bought the company. Like ah, I need a write off. I need a tax write off because my other company is doing too well or whatever it was going on in the 70s, they bought it. And it was, it was a great money loser until like all of a sudden, boom. And then they were like, cool. So we have lava lamp money now. And then they, oh no, it wasn't in the 70s. They bought it in the 80s on the down, mm-hmm. right? So lava lamps oh. had already come and gone. And then the 90s came around and it was like, boom again. Mm-hmm. And uh, they invented a little mascot called Larry Lava. And it's named after her like great uncle Larry or whatever. And she had a little Larry Lava watch, like a little watch was like a Mickey Mouse watch, except it's with this lava lamp with little hands. It's named after her. Oh, no. <laughs> her knuckle. Weird. Yeah, so it's just a weird fact about her weird family. Dang, <clears throat> I would love some lava lamp money. Yeah. I, I, I mean, any that, money. I, any money would be nice. But. Yeah. I don't know what this I could uh, I don't know what I could sell this for right now. Uh, but that that's our lava lamp money. <laughs> I think it'd be like forty bucks, maybe. <laughs> if it's an OG, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, I give it. I give hundred. it. Yeah, I think within the next three years, there's going to be another. Oh yeah, with how? Oh. Yeah, the nineties, yeah, the third, and early two thousands are back. Yeah, mm-hmm. it makes sense. Yeah, that's if Joey Z is proving of anything, it's that that's all coming back. That is very true. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, Well, I miss you guys. Yeah, I miss you too. Thanks for Mm -hmm. listening. Yeah. Oh, you and you too, audience. And you too, audience. Karina (laughs) misses you all. Uh, Yeah, follow us at Weird Brunch everywhere. Listen to us. You're already listening. That's whatever. Anyway, listen again. Go back. Listen Rewind. Again. Mm-hmm. Listen Just again. Play on repeat. Please. <laughs> Please.